Chapter 7 of Don O'Hara, The Girl Who Laughed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. Don O'Hara, The Girl Who Laughed by Edna Ferber. Chapter 7 Blackie's Philosophy. I did not write Nora about von Gerhard. After all, I told myself, there was nothing to write, and so I was the first to break the solemn pact that we had made. "'You will write everything, won't you, Don, dear?' Nora had pleaded with tears in her pretty eyes. "'Promise me. We've been nearer to each other in these last few months than we have been since we were girls, and I've loved it so. Please don't do as you did during those miserable years in New York, when you were fighting your troubles alone and we knew nothing of it.' You wrote only the happy things. Promise me you'll write the unhappy ones, too, though the saints forbid that there should be any to write. And, Don, don't you dare to forget your heavy underwear in November. Those lake breezes. Well, someone has to tell you, and I can't leave those to von Gerhard. He has promised to act as monitor over your health. And so I promised. I crammed my letters with descriptions of the Knopf household. I assured her that I was putting on so much weight that the skirts which formerly hung about me in limp, dejected folds now refused to meet in the back, and all the hooks and eyes were making faces at each other. My cheeks, I told her, looked as if I were wearing plumpers, and I was beginning to waddle and puff as I walked. Nora made frantic answer. For mercy's sake, child, be careful or you'll be fat. To which I replied, Don't care if I am. Rather be hunky and healthy than skinny and sick have tried both. It is impossible to avoid becoming round-cheeked when one is working on a paper that allows one to shut one's desk and amble comfortably home for dinner at least five days in the week. Everybody is at least plump in this comfortable, get town, where everybody placidly locks his shop or office and goes home at noon to dine heavily on soup and meat and vegetables and pudding, washed down by the inevitable beer and followed by forty winks on the dining-room sofa with a German Zeitung spread comfortably over the head as protection against the flies. There is a fascination about the bright little city. There is about it something quaint and foreign, as though a cross-section of the old world had been dumped bodily into the lap of Wisconsin. It does not seem at all strange to hear German spoken everywhere, in the streets, in the shops, in the theaters, in the streetcars. One day I chanced upon a sign hung above the doorway of a little German bakery over on the north side. There were Hornken and Kaffeekuchen in the windows, and a brood of flaxen-haired and sticky children in the back of the shop. I stopped, open-mouthed, to stare at the worn sign tacked over the door. Here word English gesprochen, it announced. I blinked. Then I read it again. I shut my eyes and opened them again suddenly. The fat German letters spoke their message as before. English spoken here. On reaching the office, I told Norberg, the city editor, about my find. He was not impressed. Norberg never is impressed. He is the most soul-satisfying and theatrical city editor that I have ever met. He is fat and unbelievably nimble and keen-eyed and untiring. He says, hell, when things go wrong. He smokes innumerable cigarettes, inhaling the fumes and sending out the thin wraith of smoke with little explosive sounds between tongue and lips. He wears blue shirts, and no collar to speak of, and his trousers are kept in place only by a miracle, and an inefficient-looking leather belt. When he refused to see the story in the little German bakery sign, I began to argue. 
"'But, man alive, this is America. I think I know a story when I see it. Suppose you were traveling in Germany and should come across a sign over a shop saying, "'Here were Deutsch gesprochen. Wouldn't you think you were dreaming?' Norberg waved an explanatory hand. "'This isn't America. This is Milwaukee. After you've lived here a year or so, you'll understand what I mean. If we should run a story of that sign with a two-column cut, Milwaukee wouldn't even see the joke.' But it was not necessary that I live in Milwaukee a year or so in order to understand its peculiarities, for I had a personal conductor and efficient guide in the new friend that had come into my life with the first day of my work on the post. Surely no woman ever had a stronger friend than little Blackie Griffith, sporting editor of the Milwaukee Post. We became friends, not step by step, but in one gigantic leap such as sometimes triumphs over the gap between acquaintance and liking. I never shall forget my first glimpse of him. He strolled into the city room from his little domicile across the hall. A shabby, disreputable, out-at-elbows office coat was worn over his ultra-smart street clothes, and he was puffing at a freakish little pipe in the shape of a miniature automobile. He eyed me a moment from the doorway, a fantastic, elfin little figure. I thought that I had never seen so strange and so ugly a face as that of this little brown Welshman with his lank, black hair and his deep-set, uncanny black eyes. Suddenly he trotted over to me with a quick little step. In the doorway he had looked forty. Now a smile illumined the many lines of his dark countenance, and in some miraculous way he looked twenty. "'Are you the New York importation?' he asked, his great black eyes searching my face. "'I'm what's left of it,' I replied meekly. "'I understand you've been in for repairs. Must have met up with something on the road. They say the going is full of bumps in New York.' "'Bumps,' I laughed. It's uphill every bit of the road, and yet you've got to go full speed to get anywhere. But I'm running easily again, thank you. He waved away a cloud of pipe smoke and knowingly squinted through the haze. We don't speed up much here, and they ain't no hill climbing to speak of. But say, if you ever should hit a nasty place on the route, toot your siren for me and I'll come. I'm a regular little human garage when it comes to patching up those aggravating screws that need oiling. And say, don't let Norberg bully you. My name's Blackie. I'm going to like you. Come over to my sanctum once in a while, and I'll show you my scrapbook and let you play with the office revolver. And so it happened that I had not been in Milwaukee a month before Blackie and I were friends. Nora was horrified. My letters were full of him. I told her that she might get a more complete mental picture of him if she knew that he wore the pinkest shirts and the purplest neckties and the blackest and whitest of black-and-white checked vests that ever aroused the envy of an office boy, and beneath them all, the gentlest of hearts. And therefore one loves him. There is a sort of spell about the illiterate little slangy brown Welshman. He is a presiding genius of the place. The office boys adore him. The old man takes his advice in selecting a new motor car. The managing editor arranges his lunch hour to suit Blackie's, and they go off to the press club together, arm in arm. It is Blackie who lends a sympathetic ear to the society editor's tale of woe. He hires and fires the office boys, Boldly he criticizes the news editor's make-up. He receives delegations of tan-coated, red-faced, prize-fighting-looking persons. He gently explains to the photographer why that last batch of cuts make their subjects look as if afflicted with the German measles. He arbitrates any row that the newspaper may have with such dignitaries as the mayor or the chief of police. He manages boxing shows. He skims about in a smart little roadster. He edits the best sporting page in the city. And at four o'clock of an afternoon, he likes to send around the corner for a chunk of devil's food cake with butter filling from the woman's exchange. Blackie never went to school to speak of. 
He doesn't know was from were, but he can see a story quicker and farther and clearer than any newspaper man I ever knew, excepting Peter Orme. There is a legend about to the effect that one day the managing editor, who is Scotch and without a sense of humor, ordered that Blackie should henceforth be addressed by his surname of Griffith, as being a more dignified appellation for the use of fellow reporters, hangers-on, copy-kids, office-boys, and others about the big building. The day after the order was issued, the managing editor summoned a freckled youth and thrust a sheaf of galley-proofs into his hand. "'Take those to Mr. Griffith,' he ordered, without looking up. "'To who?' "'To Mr. Griffith,' said the managing editor, laboriously and scowling a bit. The boy took three unwilling steps toward the door. Then he turned a puzzled face toward the managing editor. "'Say, honest, I ain't never heard of that guy. He must be a new one. Where'll I find him?' "'Oh, damn, take those proofs to Blackie,' roared the managing editor, and thus ended Blackie's enforced flight into the realms of dignity. All these things and more I wrote to the scandalized Nora. I informed her that he wore more diamond rings and scarf-pins and watch-fobs than a railroad conductor, and that his checked top-coat shrieked to heaven. There came back a letter in which every third word was underlined, and which ended by asking what the morals of such a man could be. Then I tried to make Blackie more real to Nora, who, in all her sheltered life, had never come in contact with a man like this. As for his morals, or what you would consider his morals, sis, they probably are a deep crimson, but I'll swear there is no yellow streak. I never have heard anything more pathetic than his story. Blackie sold papers on a downtown corner when he was a baby six years old. Then he got a job as office boy here, and he used to sharpen pencils and run errands and carry copy. After office hours he took care of some horses in an alley barn nearby, and after that work was done he was employed about the press room of one of the old German newspaper offices. Sometimes he would be too weary to crawl home after working half the night, and so he would fall asleep, a worn, tragic little figure, on a pile of old papers and sacks in a warm corner near the presses. He was the head of a household, and every penny counted, and all the time he was watching things and learning. Nothing escaped those keen black eyes. He used to help the photographer when there was a pile of plates to develop, and presently he knew more about photography than the man himself. So they made him staff photographer. In some marvelous way he knew more ball players and fighters and horsemen than the sporting editor. He had a nose for news that was nothing short of wonderful. He never went out of the office without coming back with a story. They used to use him in the sporting department when a rush was on. Then he became one of the sporting staff, then assistant sporting editor, then sporting editor. He knows this paper from the basement up. He could operate a linotype or act as managing editor with equal ease. No, I'm afraid that Blackie hasn't had much time for morals. But Nora, dear, I wish that you could hear him when he talks about his mother. He may follow doubtful paths and associate with questionable people and wear restless clothes, but I wouldn't exchange his friendship for that of a dozen of your ordinary so-called good men. All these years of work and suffering have made an old man of little Blackie, although he is young in years. But they haven't spoiled his heart any. He is able to distinguish between sham and truth because he has been obliged to do it ever since he was a child selling papers on the corner. But he still clings to the office that gave him his start, although he makes more money in a single week outside the office than his salary would amount to in half a year. He says that this is a job that does not interfere with his work. Such is Blackie, surely the oddest friend a woman ever had. He possesses a genius for friendship and a wonderful understanding of suffering, born of those years of hardship and privation. 
Each learned the other's story, bit by bit, in a series of confidences exchanged during that peaceful, beatific period that follows just after the last edition has gone down. Blackie's little cubbyhole of an office is always blue with smoke, and cluttered with a thousand odds and ends, photographs, souvenirs, boxing gloves, a litter of pipes and tobacco, a wardrobe of dust-covered discarded coats and hats, and Blackie in the midst of it all, sunk in the depths of his swivel chair and looking like an amiable brown gnome or a cheerful little joss-house god come to life. There is in him an uncanny wisdom which only the streets can teach. He is one of those born newspaper men who could not live out of sight of the ticker-tape and the copy-hook and the proof-sheet. "'You see, girl, it's like this here,' Blackie explained one day. "'We're all working for some good reason. A few of us are working for the glory of it, and most of us are working to eat, and lots of us are plugging and saving in the hopes that some day we'll have money enough to get back at some people we know. But there is some few working for the pure love of the work, and I guess I'm one of them fools. You see, I started in at this game when I was such a little runt that now it's an ingrowing habit, though it is comforting to know you got a place where you can always come in out of the rain and where you can have your mail sent. This newspaper work is a curse, I remarked. Show me a clever newspaper man and I'll show you a failure. There is nothing in it but the glory, and little of that. We contrive and scheme and run about all day getting a story, and then we write it at fever heat, searching our souls for words that are clean-cut and virile, and then we turn it in, and what is it? What have we to show for our day's work? An ephemeral thing, lacking the first breath of life, a thing that is dead before it is born. Why, any cub reporter, if he were to put into some other profession the same amount of nerve and tact and ingenuity and finesse and stick-to-itiveness that he expends in prying a single story out of some unwilling victim, could retire with a fortune in no time. Blackie blew down the stem of his pipe, preparatory to refilling the bowl. There was a quizzical light in his black eyes. The little heap of burned matches at his elbow was growing to kindling wood proportions. It was common knowledge that Blackie's trick of lighting pipe or cigarette and then forgetting to puff at it caused his bill for matches to exceed his tobacco expense account. "'You talk,' chuckled Blackie, like you meant it. "'But say, girl, it's a lonesome game, this retiring with a fortune. I've noticed that them guys who retire with a barrel of money usually dies at the end of the first year of a kind of a lingering homesickness. You can see their pictures in the papers with a pathetic story of how they was just beginning to enjoy life when along comes the grim reaper and claims them. Blackie slid down in his chair and blew a column of smoke ceilingward. I knew a guy once, newspaper man too, who retired with a fortune. He used to do the city hall for us. Well, he got in soft with the administration before election, and made quite a pile in stocks that was tipped off to him by his political friends. His wife was crazy for him to quit the newspaper game. He done it, and say, that guy kept on getting richer and richer till even his wife was almost satisfied. But say, girl, was that chap lonesome. One day he come up here looking like a dog that's run off with the steak. He was just dying for a kind word, and he sniffed the smell of the ink and the hot metal like it was June roses. He kind of wanders over to his old desk and slumps down in the chair and tips it back and puts his feet on the desk, with his hat tipped back and a bum stogie in his mouth. And along came a kid with a bunch of papers wet from the presses and sticks one in his hand and, well, girl, that fellow, he just wriggled he was so happy. You know as well as I do that every man on a morning paper spends his day off hanging around the office wishing that a mob or a fire or something big would tear loose so he could get back into the game. I guess I told you about the time von Gerhard sent me abroad, didn't I? Von Gerhard? I repeated, startled. Do you know him? 
"'Well, he ain't bragging about it none,' Blackie admitted. "'Von Gerhard, he told me I had about five years or so to live, about two, three years ago. "'He don't approve of me. "'Pried into my private life, old Von Gerhard did. "'Something scandalous. "'I had sort of went to pieces about that time, and I went to him to be patched up. "'He thumps me fore and aft, firing a volley of questions, "'looking up the roof of my mouth and squinting at my fingernails and teeth "'like I was a prize horse for sale.' Then he sits still, looking at me for about half a minute, till I begin to feel uncomfortable. Then he says slow, "'Young man, how old are you?' "'Oh, twenty-eight or so,' I says, airy. "'My God,' said he, "'you've crammed twice those years into your life, and you'll have to pay for it. Now you listen to me. You've got to quit working and smoking and get away from this. Take an ocean voyage,' he says, "'and try to get four hours sleep a night anyway.' "'Well, say, mother, she was scared green, "'so I tucked her under my arm "'and we hit it up across the ocean, "'went to Germany, knowing that it would feel home-like there, "'and we took in all the swell Baden "'and chased up the Jungfrau. "'Say, that's a classy little mountain, that Jungfrau. "'Mother, she had some swell time, I guess. "'She never sat down except for meals "'and she wrote picture postals like mad. "'But say, girl, was I lonesome. "'Maybe that trip done me good. "'Anyway, I'm living yet.' I stuck it out for four months, and that ain't so rotten for a guy who just grew up on printer's ink ever since he was old enough to hold a bunch of papers under his arm. Well, one day Mother and me was sitting out on one of them veranda cafes they run to over there, when somebody hits me a crack on the shoulder, and there stands old Ryan, who used to do AP here. He was foreign correspondent for some big New York syndicate papers over there. "'Well, if it ain't Blackie,' he says, what in Sam Hill are you doing out of your own cell when Milwaukee's just got four more games to win the pennant? Say, girl, when I got through hugging him around the neck and buying him drinks, I knew it was me for the big ship. Mother, I says, if you got anybody on your mind that you neglected to send picture postals to, now's your last chance. If I got to die, I'm going out with my scissors in one mitt and my trusty paste pot by my side. And we hits it up for old Milwaukee. I ain't been away since, except when I was out with the ball team, sending in sportin' extra dope for the pink sheet. The last time I was in at Bombox, in comes von Gerhard, and— Who are Bombox? I interrupted. Blackie regarded me pityingly. You ain't never been to Bombox? Why, girl, if you don't know Bombox, you ain't never been properly introduced to Milwaukee. No wonder you ain't hep to the ways of this little community. There ain't what the society editor would call the proper aunt and cordial between you and the natives if you haven't had coffee at Bombox. It ain't hardly legal to live in Milwaukee all this time without ever having been inside of, but stop! If you do not tell me at once just where this wonderful place may be found, and what one does when one finds it, and how I happen to miss it, and why it is so necessary to the proper understanding of the city. I'll tell you what I'll do, said Blackie, grinning. I'll romp you over there tomorrow afternoon at four o'clock. Ach, Himmel, what will that for a grand time be, no? Blackie, you're a dear to be so polite to an old married creature like me. Did you notice, that is, does Ernst von Gerhardt drop in often at Bombach's? End of chapter 7